Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, a message I call simply me and my house. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And may God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. What a decision uh, the Bible puts before us in this passage. There are numerous decisions that stand out in history, perhaps none any more than the decision that uh, Julius Caesar faced as he stood before a very small Roman river uh, known as the Rubicon. Uh, It was situated as the boundary between what was considered Italy proper, uh, the Roman area, and the province of Gaul over which uh, Julius Caesar at the time was presiding with his army. Roman law prohibited any general from passing into Roman territory at the head of his army. Uh, They called it imperium, that is, nobody could be in control or exercise authority over an army except the elected officials of Rome. It was considered treasonous then for any general to lead his army into Roman territory. Uh, Julius Caesar had been asked to step down. When he stood there before the Rubicon, he knew that if he crossed it, it was considered an act of treason. He would face the death penalty. Any soldier who followed him would face the death penalty. It was about to spark civil war, and he knew it. Supposedly, he uttered the famous phrase, the die has been cast as he crossed the river. It was his way of saying that He knew once he made that decision, there was no going back. He was doing something that could not be undone. Forces, events were going to be set into place, and they were going to play out to their inevitable conclusion. We never know when we're going to face one of those, the die is cast moments. But I think we have one of those in our text tonight. You know, Joshua at this time in his life was an old man. He was old in a sense by the time they got to the land of Canaan. He was a lot older than everybody else uh, because all of the others had died under the judgment of God. And yet this old man had uh, led the nation of Israel into victory, under victory. And we've seen that over and over again as God has led them on into the promised land, led them further perhaps than they ever anticipated that they would be able to go under the leadership of this mighty general. But now he stands before the people of Israel calling upon them to make a choice, a decision, one that he had made and that God had blessed, and one now that he was affirming with whatever time he had left, as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. 
This passage has reached across all the intervening centuries. There's no telling how many preachers have preached about it, both Hebrew and the Old Testament era, and and now uh, that we have the Bible so amazingly and readily available to us, uh, uh, you probably, as I have, have heard many sermons preached from this passage. As for me and my house, Joshua said, we'll serve the Lord. I'll admit to you tonight that every time I preach from this passage, I'm somewhat torn because I don't know exactly whether I should do so as evangelistically and make an evangelistic appeal or whether I should use it as it was in its context. And that was an appeal to God's people to make a choice, a decision about the life that they were going to live. And since I can't ever seem to make up my mind, I tend to preach it both ways. And I'm glad that Brother Bobby said uh, we could have hour and a half sermons in this pulpit. I'm glad. I was glad I got that freedom (laughs) as if I ever needed it. Uh, uh, I've only preached one hour and a half sermon in my life that I can remember. And uh, I could even name the church where it was at, but I can tell you it was a deacon ordination service, if that tells you anything. (laughs) And uh, no, I I wasn't mad at anybody or upset. It just had a lot of time to cover, and uh, but that's uh, that. I don't do that very often. But uh, tonight, uh, you know, I, I think about a classic outline that I've used many, many times over the years that God has blessed, and it's absolutely true, uh, and it makes an evangelistic appeal. It says very simply, you must choose your God. You must choose your God. That's what Joshua said. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. You must choose your God. Point number two is, you're going to live with the God you choose. And point number three is, you're going to die with the God you choose. Now, in a day where so much Calvinism is flourishing in our world, I maybe need to be preaching that sermon a lot more because uh, no matter what kind of arguments are formulated these days to obscure uh, plain Scripture uh, and so to advance the idea that God does all the choosing, we still have passages like this, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And the message of the gospel still says, Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is not just something out of the Old Testament, even though Moses stood before the people of Israel long ago and said, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And in case they didn't get it, on the one side was a mountain that was green and flourishing. On the other side was a mountain that was dry and barren and dead. I set before you, he said, the day of this day, the way of life and the way of death, the way of blessing and the way of cursing. You must choose. Now here's Joshua, in a sense, with his dying breath almost, saying the same thing. You must choose. But the New Testament emphasizes this as well. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. I've got it up here for you. Uh, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
passage then goes on to conclude in Romans 6, 22 and 23. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life and death. Now we certainly understand what Paul was talking about when he said you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Uh, if you've ever laid concrete, then you know about a form. You want to have a patio. You want it square on two sides and rounded in the middle. You know how you make that happen? Well, I suppose you could just bring in a concrete truck and uh, have him just pour out a big old blob of concrete and then go out there with a saw and a hammer and start busting it up to make it what you want. Now you could do that. Take you a little while. But the easier way is if you want it to be square on two sides and rounded in the middle is just build your form that way. Pour the concrete in it. And then the concrete will take on that form. When Paul says they have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, then that's exactly what they had done. There was a form that was set in place and they obeyed from the heart. Now maybe you're thinking tonight, we know concrete doesn't have a heart. That's true, but you and I do. You and I do. And to obey from the heart is a very critical expression that the Bible gives to us. Uh, we may have somebody try to tell us maybe that this is teaching or, uh, some kind of a works for salvation. That's not it. Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Faith is not a work. That passage tells you that. If you don't have that one highlighted, noted in your Bible, the next time somebody comes along and tells you, well, you, you believe, that, uh, you believe in, on Jesus and that makes you saved. Well, you, you believe in works for salvation. No, I don't. Because the Bible very plainly says, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Believing faith is the exact antithesis, the exact opposite of working for salvation. One is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. One is a false gospel that has been embraced by multitudes of people down through the centuries. When Paul talks about obeying from the heart, he is talking about the response of faith how we hear the message of the gospel. And our heart then is filled with that truth of the gospel. We believe it. We trust in it. We've made, in a sense, that faith-prompted choice. We have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have trusted in Him. That means we have obeyed from our heart. Paul tells us that the making of this choice produces in us an eternal change of our Master. Where once we served the master of sin, now we, turn, we, we serve the one who is our master, our savior, Jesus Christ. 
where once we were bound for sin and death. Now we have received by faith the gift of God that is eternal life in Jesus Christ. I think the reason why the Bible presents this truth to us so clearly and so vividly, among many other reasons, is so it might emphasize and underscore in all of our life the fact that salvation is not a process as much as it is an event. It is something that we look back on and understand that, yes, I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be a, a, like me. I mean, I was saved at a young person, a young age, and then when we'd go to church camp and youth rallies and we'd all sing that old song, you know, it happened on a Sunday, somebody, everybody had to stand up. It happened on a Tuesday, somebody, and I'd have to go through that thing, and I never could remember whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday. And, and I, was, I was always a little bit scared and a little bit uncertain because I was among that crowd of people that had to say, it just happened on a one day, okay? And I, I'm okay with that. I might not remember what day of the week it was, uh, but I can tell you where it was. I can tell you where it happened, when, how. I remember what it felt like to trust in Jesus Christ and all oh, what joy could flood my soul. Amen. You see, the Bible presents this language many, many different ways, but it's calling on us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to look back at something, well, I've always believed, or I've always, but no, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make that choice. Now, as he set up before them then tonight the way of life and the way of death, uh, there's things that Joshua put before the people. Actually, there's three of them that I'm going to present, but really it's just one thing. And again, that's something the Bible does from time to time. Paul said, this one thing I do. Remember that? This one thing I do. Forgetting those things that are behind and... <laughs> Reaching forth to those things that are before, before I tre press on toward the mark. Now that sounds, when we tell it like three things, it's not. Because Paul tells us it's one thing. And in a way, this passage is exactly the same, though it presents three different actions that are taken. They're all part of the same exact thing, that choice that they made. And first of all, that involved a fear of the Lord. Verse 14, now therefore he said, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 says that we have received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 tells us submitting one to another in the fear of God. Now the fear of the Lord has fallen on hard times in today's religious culture we have championed the truth of God's love for us and our love for Him so much that I'm afraid we have left out a vital ingredient, which is the fear of God. Our love for God does not preclude our fear of Him. And let me remind you tonight that there are some ways, some things about the fear of God that are not good. Some people have what I call a superstitious fear of God. Uh, they think of God as a kind of cosmic uh, boogeyman, and some, for lack of a better way of saying it, that they need to somehow figure out a way to placate 
so they can keep him from destroying them. And whole religious structures have grown up around the idea of fearful people uh, trying to somehow find a way to appease or to make God uh, leave me alone. Uh, and I've got something, some amulet, something that I can pray over, some kind of thing that I can do. They have a very superstitious fear of God. Uh, listen, God is not something that we need to worry about charming. That, that, no, uh, that's not it. Some people have a slavish fear of God. They see a God only that carries the whip, and they're afraid that somehow they've got to do enough things or do the right things before God gets after them in some way. But if there is a superstitious fear of God and a slavish fear of God, and neither one of those are good, there is a spiritual fear of God that is correct and right. It is rooted in our love for Him. It is rooted in our trust for Him. It is the fear of God born out of our love for God because we know how much He loves us and we know how much we love Him. And the last thing we want to do is do something that will hurt Him. We fear hurting, disappointing, our God. We serve Him then with reverence and godly fear. The Old Testament presents it both as the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. In their way of thinking, it was impossible to be an intelligent person. Uh, if you don't uh, fear God, it's an intelligent thing to do, a smart thing, a wise thing to do. It's impossible then uh, to have intelligence and wisdom without fearing God. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord, but he also says serve the Lord. Serve him. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. A couple of things then. We're to serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. Again, like we've seen over and over already tonight, uh, the principles that are put in place here in Joshua are also rooted in New Testament truth. Here's 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There it is. Sincerity and truth. Some, you see, have sincerity, but not truth. And in that case, you end up sincerely wrong. And that happens. Some people have truth without sincerity. And that leads to apathy, indifference, and the possibility and likelihood even of compromise. Truth, but no sincerity. And so... The Bible calls us to both, to serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. And to show that then, he says, by putting away other gods. And notice that the text presents a couple of times, actually, uh, the, the, the kind of gods or classes of gods uh, that are, were available to them. There were the gods he called that were from before the flood. Some commentaries will tell you that idolatry survived the flood. Uh, and that was what Joshua was talking about. Other commentaries will say that he was simply talking about the flood when they 
had uh, crossed through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea and, and the enemies that were coming behind them from Egypt, the threat that they had from Egypt was behind them. And so they had uh, been dedicated unto Moses. They had followed Moses, their deliverer. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and, and Egypt was supposed to be behind them. And to me, I think that is the most uh, consistent way of thinking about what Joshua was telling them to do because that would be more in keeping with the clear and present danger they were facing. You see, this crowd of people had never been in Egypt. Their parents had. This crowd of people had never been in Egypt with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones. But the gods of Egypt still called them. I think that gives us a great lesson tonight as God's people. Because even though we are saved, we are baptized, we've declared our, we have received Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have chosen our God, we have followed Him in baptism, and we have said then, we've decided to follow Jesus. And yet maybe you know what it's like. Even though you were never in Egypt, in that sense, there are things in Egypt that call you even after you're saved. A lot of us who give the testimony to, to sins that we got into after we were saved that we never even got into before we were saved. Bad decisions that we made, choices that we made after we were saved. Didn't do that before I saved. You see, we can learn from this tonight that even though we weren't in Egypt, Egypt still calls to us. And we have to make that choice. And that's what serving God in sincerity and in truth is all about. To turn away from the gods of Egypt. To say that those gods that so champion uh, the desires of the flesh. That made a deity out of everything loathsome and lustful that humans have a tendency to go after. Made it an object of worship. You may not have ever been to Egypt. But that doesn't mean that the flesh and the longings of the flesh and the desires of the flesh don't still call to you. Because they do. And as if that weren't enough, there's the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And we know a lot about the gods of the Amorites. Uh, we know almost as much about them as we do of the gods of the Egyptians. They too deified the most loathsome and lustful aspects of human character. Their gods were evil. They promoted evil. And for the people of God to look at the people of the Amorites and the other ites in whose land they dwelled and to see the way that they lived and to see the way they unleashed their passions, there was something in that that would call to them to throw off their restraints and inhibitions to enjoy and indulge the flesh. I debated over whether or not to say this tonight, but I'm going to anyway. Just last night, I knew I was going to preach on this. And I, I was just going along through the channels, and all of a sudden I, I was watching somebody singing. And, and I couldn't help but notice what caught my eye was the way the crowd, this was a rock performance, rock music performance. And please, please don't get up and walk out because I didn't watch it long. But I found out after a minute or two that it was the MTV Video Awards. And their kids don't go home and say, Brother Rich said it was okay to watch it. I'm, I did not say that. 
<laughs> okay? I was minding my own business, going through the channels, trying to get to the outdoor channel. And there it was. And all these people were on their feet with their hands in the air and shouting. Some of them were raving candles and stuff. I mean, and I thought, this is exactly what I thought. Who are they worshiping? Who are they worshiping? I wasn't left to wonder very long because it wasn't long until they panned up on the stage. I'm not going to name the performer. That was when I decided it was time for me to move on toward the outdoor channel, and, and I did. But I couldn't help but think. We talk all the time about how America is becoming less godly and more secular all the time, but don't think that means that America is becoming irreligious or unreligious. It means that Americans are creating their own religion. And let me tell you something. It is one that the Amorites would know very well. Very well. We're not good at inventing when it comes to religion. We tend to recycle the old stuff and that's happening all over our world today. Be careful. Remember the root of this message is tonight. You've got to choose your God. And you're going to have to live with the God you choose and die with the God you choose. Which brings us to the last point. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. If you're saved tonight, it'd be easy to pass off of this challenge and say, well, I made that decision a long time ago. And if you can look back on the day or the night or the afternoon or morning when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, God bless you. Thank God for it tonight. That your salvation is not rooted in some hope so something, but it is rooted in a no-so reality. You have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have chosen your God. Yet there is the ever-present choice to all of us or that is available to us because we can choose to resist God's plan or even reject God's work to move us further along in our spiritual journey. We may get settled down where we are and comfortable with what we are and what we're doing. We may wander away because we are indeed, as the old hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our salvation is a once-for-all decision, but our life of service doesn't work that way. Let me explain it to you. When we're saved, we give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of our Lord Jesus. When we're saved, we give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of Him. But as time goes on, we learn a lot more about Him. And we learn a lot more about ourselves. We'll find out that we have talents that we didn't even know about when we got saved. Are you going to surrender them to Jesus? Or keep them to yourself? Squander them on the world? 
We, we find out not only about our talents, but we also find out about our flaws, our weaknesses. We learn far more about ourselves and far more about Him. It's possible at that point to conclude, well, you know, I must not have been saved or I wouldn't have all these problems. You may try to get saved again, but you know that never satisfies because you can't get saved again. What you do need to do, and maybe this applies to somebody here tonight, is to continue to make this choice to serve the Lord. You may have gotten on track, off track, gone a different way. And tonight it may be your time to once again affirm that choice. Lord, I choose you today all over again. God may come along with a new opportunity. That's what he was doing to Joshua and the children of Israel. Something you never expected. Something you never saw coming. And yet when God brings that to your doorstep, guess what? You've got a choice to make. Will I go on with God? Will I do what God wants me to do? Or will I say no to him? I think that's why that I love this passage so much because it says, choose you this day. We don't go through life relying on a choice we made yesterday or 20 years ago because every day brings its own choice to us about what we'll do. Are we going to serve the Lord? We're going to go on with Him. And this choice is ever before us. It's an obscure Old Testament character that I like to read after from time to time. It was built around, the story is built around the Absalom rebellion. You know, Absalom was David's son, and he led a rebellion, led the children of Israel away. He, he operated so smoothly under the counsel, of course, of Ahithophel. Absalom would watch the courts, and every time David would make a decision, he knew that somebody went away happy and somebody went away unhappy. And Absalom would go to that person that was unhappy and said, oh, if I was king, oh, I would have gone the other way. And over time then, this uh, good-looking guy, the Bible says that he was known for his, his he was fair of countenance, he was a very good-looking fellow, smooth talker, constantly working, Behind the scenes, over time, he turned the heart of a nation away from David. David left out, leaving Jerusalem in defeat and disgrace under the taunts of people who once sang his praises. But there was one old man, a wealthy man, influential man from Gilead. His name was Barzillai. And he knew that though things looked bad for David, the time was coming when David would be back on the throne. And the Bible spelled out in great detail what Barzillai did. He brought all of these supplies and, and, provide, and provisions for David and his men who were still with him because Barzillai knew that the time would come when David would be back on the throne. And sure enough, exactly as he anticipated, that happened. So here's David going back to occupy the throne. His trusted advisor, Ahithophel, now the Judas 
of the Old Testament, the Benedict Arnold, the traitor of the Old Testament, Ahithophel, had died at his own hand. David needed a counselor and advisor. Who'd he pick? Barzillai. Come with me, Barzillai. Sit at my table. Be at the right hand of the king. And look what Barzillai said. How long have I to live that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem? I'm this day fourscore years old. Can I discern between good and evil? I'm too old to make good decisions. He had just made one. He certainly saw through all the things that were going on in the kingdom and understood that David was God's anointed and God was going to work to bring him back in the throne. I mean, he knew that. Can I make good decisions? Yes, he could. I'm too old. You want me to come to your table, but can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Well, I, I can't. I don't have. I can't taste my food anymore, David. Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? I've lost my hearing. Hey, I can identify with that. Well, I'd just be a, sir, a burden to my lord, the king. Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king. Why should the king recompense at me with such a reward? Let thy servant, I pray, thee turn back again. Look at his goal in life, that I might die in my own city and be buried by the grave of my father and of my mother. David, if you don't mind, I'll go along a little way with you. But then let me go back and keep my eye on the cemetery. Got my casket all picked out. Let me keep my casket over there. I got it. Just let me go back and die in peace. And you know what David said? Okay. Okay. He offered him Chimham, his servant. Chimham went on with him and no doubt lived out his life serving King David in an honorable and glorious way. But Barzillai turned down the chance of a lifetime. I'll go over Jordan, but only a little way, and then I've got to go back. Remember where we started tonight, and I mentioned Caesar's decision to cross the Rubicon River. The die is cast. Can't go back. Barzillai couldn't make that kind of choice. And I hope tonight that we can look in this passage and realize that every day brings its own decision of whether we will choose to serve God or not. Whether we'll follow the longings, the desires of the flesh, or whether we'll follow God. Whether we let sin and the devil have his way, or whether we let God and his service have his way, those choices come to us all the time. The trouble is we never know when that decision like Barzillai had or like Caesar had or when one of those, the dice cast moment comes. And we make that decision. And it changes everything. It changes everything. 
Oh, do you see why we need the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God living in us constantly, pointing us in the right direction? Choose you this day whom you'll serve. Stand together, please.